Welcome. Um, this is the next of the upper limb um, segments. Um, it, for those keeping score, it's AUL8. This is the continuation of the uh, anatomy of the forearm, completion of the flexor aspect, some of the osteology, the radius and ulna, and the distal radio ulna joint, and also the extensor compartment. So quite a a big area um, to cover today. If I can remind those who wish to support us, uh, you can do so on patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. Uh, anatopod is all in capitals, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D, and that's greatly appreciated. It gives us a chance to expand our uh, services and uh, uh, convert them into an audiovisual um, group. Uh, Okay, let's, so let's get on with it. We left it in the past one um, where we had discussed um, uh, aspects including the superficial and deep flexor compartment muscles. So quite a lot to discuss still on the flexor side. We've got to talk about the neurovascular pattern. And as I've stated, the ulnar nerve runs on the ulnar border of the ulnar artery and the radial nerve on the radial border of the radial artery. That's important, obviously, because if you have an injury to the wrist, a stab wound, put your arm through a bit of glass, if you've got arterial bleeding, the chances are you've probably got an associated uh, nerve injury as well. So that makes a, a very big difference. In brief, the median nerve runs, as I've said before, between the two heads of the pronator teres, deep to the flexor digitorum superficialis and crossing the ulnar artery. The radioulnar artery bifurcation, as we know, is very variable, but they can run down to form two palmar arches, as opposed, if we're looking at the foot, to a single plantar arch. The superficial arch is ulnar artery dominated. The deep is radial artery dominated, whereas in the foot, it's mostly the medial plantar artery for that single plantar arch. Now, the big supply of the forearm, however, is the common interosseous branch of the ulnar artery with a very weak posterior interosseous branch and that's supported by perforating vessels or a perforating vessel low down that enters the extensor compartment from the anterior interosseous. It's given a supplement there to a weak artery that peters out and you remember that the anterior interosseous giving off its median artery which is an artery running across with the median nerve is actually the axial vessel of the upper limb. And that looks very similar to the axial vessel of the lower limb, which runs down with the sciatic nerve, uh, what some people call the companion artery of the sciatic nerve. It's a branch of the inferior gluteal, but that's the axial sort of vestigial remnant of the axial vessel of the lower limb. And some people like the Latin term, the arteria nervi comitans ischiadici, which is... Uh, the historical name of sciatic, the ischiatic nerve, part of the um, ischium. Anyway, that's just talking about bits that are homologous between the upper and lower uh, limbs. Now, coming back to it, there are three nerves uh, which share the innervation of the forearm muscles, uh, and they each pass between two muscle heads, as we know. So it's got a basic structure. I've stated the, already that the median nerve passes between the two heads of the pronator teres, the ulnar nerve between the two heads of the flexor carpi ulnaris. And both of these fellows innervate the 
flex a forearm musculature, and that overlaps particularly seen in the innovation of the flexor digitorum profundus. The muscles of the extensor compartment are via the posterior interosseous nerve, and that is its compartment nerve. And that nerve too moves between the two heads of origin of the supinator muscle. So the whole thing has a kind of homologous structure. A little word about the vessels, as we know, the brachial artery enters the cubital fossa, as I've already described, with the bifurcation split uh, wherever that occurs, resulting in the radial artery appearing more like the brachial artery continuation. The ulnar artery comes off at much more of an angle. The radial is medial to the biceps tendon under the bicipital aponeurosis, and then it runs laterally over the top of the supinator, over the insertion of the pronator teres and the radial origin, one could say, of the flexor digitorum superficialis and the flexor pollicis longus. And then it finally runs down over the wrist, over the pronator quadratus to the lower radius. And it then disappears under the tendon of the abductor pollicis brevis and the extensor po- uh, the abductor pollicis longus and the extensor pollicis brevis, which always run together, so that it, it, it goes into that area of the anatomical snuff box, which I'll consider a little bit later. So the best way of finding it, that is the radial artery, is just really to lift up or retract the belly of the brachioradialis muscle on the side of the radius. And as I've repeatedly said, the superficial radial nerve runs lateral to it. The relationship's important for the identification with wrist and forearm penetrating trauma. And I must say, I can't tell you how many times that little adage that I've just said of the relationship between the artery and nerve has proven useful at surgery. Now, we'll discuss this artery in the hand in another podcast, but it has branches in the forearm and down at the wrist, and we should know something about them. In the forearm, they include the radial recurrent artery, which we've already met in the podcast on the elbow, and that arises off the brachial artery just after the main radial artery. It anastomoses with the radial collateral artery as part of that radial elbow anastomosis. And this, then as we get lower down, a palmar carpal branch, which is rather small, that comes off at the level of the lower border of the pronata quadratus, and there's also often a superficial palmar branch at the lower end as the artery winds around to get to the anatomical snuff box. At the wrist, there's also a dorsal carpal branch which comes off under the extensor tendons and often the first dorsal metacarpal artery dividing almost immediately into lateral and medial branches to supply the adjacent sides of the thumb metacarpal, which is given off just before the artery enters the two heads of the first dorsal interosseous muscle to get into the depth of the palm. The other artery we've got on the other side is the ulnar artery, and uh, we uh, lose this artery a little bit at the cubital fossa because it passes deeply, actually deep to the pronator teres and beneath the fibrous arch of the flexor digitorum superficialis. It leaves or runs away from the median nerve, and it's lying on the flexor digitorum profundus with the ulnar nerve, of course, as we know, to its ulnar side. And then it passes into the palm, uh, where it continues as a superficial palmar arch. Now, that system is, of course, entirely different from the single vascular 
plantar arch of the foot. We feel the anterior pulsation radial of the flexor carpi ulnaris, just on the radial side of flexor carpi ulnaris. You can often see it pulsating, and it, you feel it by also compressing it against the pisiform. And um, again, it's quite easy to expose uh, really this artery by just retracting the flexor carpi ulnaris. But of course, if you do that, you have to take care of that more medially, more ulnar woods located ulnar nerve. Now, the branches in the forearm of the ulnar artery are, of course, the anterior ulnar recurrent artery and the posterior ulnar recurrent artery, and an important vessel, the common interosseous artery. Common interosseous is actually a very short stem, and it gives rise to three vessels, the anterior interosseous, which hugs the interosseous membrane, and that runs between the flexor digitorum profundus and the flexor pollicis longus, both of which it supplies. And there are perforating branches, as I've said before, sometimes only one, but sometimes multiple, which perforate the interosseous membrane to support this very weak posterior interosseous artery, which usually peters out around about the, uh, uh, the mid-forearm. And also, this artery supplies nutrient vessels, um, this is part of the anterior interosseous, to both the radius and the ulna bones. Uh, and it finally perforates just above the pronator quadratus. And in a sense, if you're looking at the lower limb when we study that, there's some homology here with the way the perineal artery perforates in the lower limb. In the lower limb, there's an anastomosis there with the lateral branch of the anterior tibial, which passes to the dorsum of the foot, and it joins the lateral tarsal artery. So it's an anterior tibial collateral uh, when the perineal, for example, is occluded, or the other way around. So there's a, a communication between the perineal and tibial vessels there. The posterior interosseous vessel, I've already said, that's the second of these branches, fades out in most people. And the course of this vessel pierces the interosseous membrane. That behaves a little in, like in the lower limb, like the anterior tibial artery, which runs through to the extensor or, or dorsal compartment of the leg by running over uh, the interosseous membrane. The other ulnar artery branches in the forearm are the palmar carpal, which is the palmar arch support vessel, and there's also a dorsal carpal arch support as well. A couple of extra things to say from the point of view of practical anatomy. First, when performing a baloney amputation, uh, you might wonder why I'm talking about this, but you can pass your finger around and under the tibialis anterior muscle, and if you divide that, you expose the anterior tibial artery and the lateral lying deep perineal or fibular nerve lying on the interosseous membranes, done absolutely bloodlessly. And I suggest you try it in a more anatomical amputation rather than just sort of uh, the standard types of amputation that are done, but doing it more anatomically. Secondly, as I've said in, in an above-knee amputation, when you cut the sciatic or ischiatic nerve, as it's called, there is that little companion vessel. Um, and uh, that's the remnant, as I've said, of the axial vessel of the lower limb branch of the inferior gluteal. But it's exactly the same as the branch of the anterior interosseous, the median artery. And in some people, that median artery is actually quite large. 
but that's the axial vessel of the upper limb. And I just wanted to reinforce these things. This is basically how the limb structure works. Now, all of that means that there's a vascular anastomotic network around the elbow and the wrist. In the elbow, of course, there are recurrent branches, often double from the radial and ulnar and common interosseous branches. And these anastomos anteriorly and posteriorly with articular branches of the profunda brachii and the so-called on the ulnar side, superior and inferior ulnar collateral arteries. So there's a very, very rich elbow network. In the wrist, the radial and ulnar have anterior and posterior carpal branches, as I've briefly mentioned, and they create an anterior carpal arch which sends branches deep into the hand to anastomose with the deep palmar arch. The posterior carpal arch lies more distally and across the distal carpus row, sending dorsal metacarpal branches which anastomose um, via the interosseous spaces with the palmar digital arteries and with metacarpal arteries that are coming from the palmar arches. So it's again a very rich network, but it's based on an anterior and posterior carpal anastomosis formation of metacarpal and digital vessels anteriorly and posteriorly. Now, we forget, I think, a little the veins of the forearm, despite how important they are, obviously, for venous access. The venae comitantes do not bring much blood from the hand, which arises from a dorsal superficial network, which you can check out on your own hand, as on the radial side, the cephalic vein from the preaxial border arising in the snuff box, and medially on the postaxial border as the basilic vein, which pierces the deep fascia and joins the brachial vein to form the axillary vein. And at the cubital fossa, of course, a very variable median cephalic, median basilic, which are available for venipuncture. Now, we're then onto the nerves of the flexor compartment um, of the forearm. Of course, the story in the flexor aspect is the median nerve uh, and the ulnar nerve. The branch to the pronator teres can often be given off in the cubital fossa. After piercing between the two heads of this muscle, the median nerve supplies the flexor carpi radialis and the palmaris longus and then joins the ulnar artery under the fibrous arch in the formation of that flexor digitorum superficialis. So that here it actually hugs the FDS, the flexor digitorum superficialis, the undersurface in some luciferial tissue. That's the way of finding if it, it if it's been injured. It's just under that border. And lower down it runs a little radial woods to emerge between the flexor carpi radialis and the palmaris longus, if you have one, and as it makes its way then under the flexor retinaculum into the hand, and we'll consider that in the next podcast. The nerve, of course, has its anterior interosseous branch, which is a mixed nerve supplying the radial woods to, usually, parts of the flexor digitorum profundus, the flexor pollicis longus, and the pronata quadratus, as well as the interosseous membrane, and the radius and ulna periosteum. In other words, it has a sensory component. And it also innovates sensation to the carpus and the wrist. Now, just above the flexor retinaculum is the important palmar cutaneous branch, which innovates the skin of the thinner eminence. When you make an incision, for example, for a carpal tunnel release, you should stay 
slightly, in my opinion, out of the depth of the skin crease, as those wounds don't heal very well, and don't extend your incision above the distal wrist crease. And the reason for that is so that you avoid any chance of injuring that little palmar cutaneous branch. If you want to extend the incision proximally, you can actually make a little dog leg ulna woods across the distal skin crease for about a centimetre or so as needed. The ulna nerve, by comparison, enters the forearm, as I've said, between the two heads of the flexocarpial narus, and it's seen by retracting the belly of that muscle, and it lies with the ulnar artery on the substance of the flexodigitorum profundus, and it supplies those two ulnar wood aspects of that muscle. The nerve, of course, passes in front of the flexor retinaculum, and well above the wrist is a little dorsal ulnar nerve branch, underneath the flexocarpial narus, which you can see on your dissections, which winds backwards into the extensor forearm, and which mixes with the radial nerve in the dorsal cutaneous supply of the hand, the hypothena region, little finger, the ulnar side of the ring finger, as far as the distal phalanx. Another point of difference here, for example, if we're looking at the upper limb and the lower limb between the ulnar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve in the foot is that the dorsal innervation on the digits by the plantar digital nerves is a little bit more extensive in the hand than it is in the foot. In the hand, both the median nerve and the ulnar nerve can innervate as far on the dorsal side as the middle of the middle phalanx. In the foot, it's usually up to the distal phalanx or perhaps the epinechial fold. And that's one of my favourite little questions that I ask postgraduates tell me the differences between the ulnar nerve and the lateral plantar nerve or the median nerve and the medial plantar nerve. There's also uh, a small palmar cutaneous branch which innervates the skin over the um, hypothena eminence and that's the homologue of the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve in the foot which has a little extra function. I wonder whether or not you can tell me what that is. I'll discuss that when we get to the podcast on the foot. So that's a little way off yet. But I suppose I want you thinking about these sorts of things now, the homology, the similarity between the upper and lower limbs. We've got, of course, the radial nerve in the forearm. That's left, and that includes the continuation of the main nerve, which is really the superficial branch of the radial nerve, and that lies under brachioradialis, very easy to find. Uh, but it lies on the supinator, on the pronator teres, on the flexodigitorum superficialis, as I've said, on the radial side of the artery. And that nerve runs out under the brachioradialis tendon above the radial styroid, and it splits into a few branches over the top of the palpable extensor pollicis longus tendon. You can sort of check this area out on your own hand. So this overlaps the radial aspect of the dorsum of the hand and includes the dorsum of the thumb on both sides and the index finger, as well as the middle finger and the radial side of the ring finger. That's the radial nerve, ulnar nerve split on the dorsum of the hand. So the dorsal distributions, like the median ulnar nerve, break up on the palmar side of the hand, so they're almost identical. The remainder of the nerve entering the supinator is technically called the deep branch of the radial nerve before it enters the extensor compartment, where it is the compartment nerve, and it's called then the posterior interosseous nerve. So the deep branch of the radial nerve, in the way I've described it, actually innervates 
the supinator muscle and also the extensor carpi radialis brevis. The rest of the extensor musculature is innervated off the forearm by the posterior interosseous nerve. So let's get our terms right. The only other nerve uh, we need to add in the forearm is, of course, the lateral cutaneous nerve of the forearm, which we've already met, and that's the continuation of the musculocutaneous nerve. There's also the medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm on the other side, and both of these have anterior, that is lateral and medial uh, cutaneous nerves of the forearm, have anterior and posterior branches that go down to the wrist, and sometimes even a little beyond, on the pre- and post-axial side, of the forearm. That's basically the structure. There'll be another podcast, um, not the next one, I think the next one after that, where we're going to talk about the carpus, but also an overview of the neural anatomy of the upper limb and nerve lesions. The other area we've got left here is, of course, the distal radio on the joint and the interosseous membrane. We have considered already the proximal radio on the joint, but not the distal radio on the joint. So in brief, really, unlike the proximal joint, the distal radio ulna it itself is closed off from the wrist by a fibrocartilage disc. It's not like the proximal radio ulna joins the elbow. This is quite separate. And this attaches to the ulna notch of the radius and a small fossa near the ulna styloid. If you can get both of those out or look at an articulated skeleton. There's actually a small capsular so-called sacciform recess of the capsule, which lies under the substance of pronata quadratus, poking upwards. And if you look at an articulated skeleton, the radius pronates around the stationary ulna, and with the rotation passing through the centre of curvature of each radio ulna joint. Rotation around the styloid process varies in its positioning as you pronate by fixing the thumb where there's the greatest ulna movement or where you fix any digit where there's the least ulnar movement with the little finger. Pronation is a function of the median nerve and supination of the musculocutaneous and radial nerves, although that, that idea, the way I've presented it there, is a little bit simplified. The other thing we've got to do before we move on to the extensor side, I think, is to look at the osteology of the um, radius. So let's deal with that. Here there are some discrete components. The head is covered in hyaline cartilage and is palpable in the lateral aspect of the elbow joint moving around as a cylinder in pronation and supination whilst the elbow is moderately extended. You can feel that on your own elbow, but also if you've got access to take a radius out and go through it as I'm going through it. This articulates with the radial notch of the ulna and is surrounded by the free annular ligament, and that articulates also with the capitulum of the humerus. Below this narrowed or wasted annular ligament is the beginnings of an area that's called the quadrate ligament, and that area is directly over the neck of the radius. Below that is the shaft with a very prominent oval radial tuberosity for attachment of the biceps tendon posteriorly. There's often a separating little bursa there. And from that point passes anterior and posterior oblique lines on the bone. At the upper end between the two lines, the supinator actually inserts. And below this, in the greatest part of the bone curvature, is the attachment of the pronator teres. 
Now, the bone below anteriorly is the attachment of the flexor digitorum superficialis, and below that, above the pronata quadratus, is a little attachment point of the flexor pollicis longus. So there's actually a small bit of bare bone, if you like, between the origins of the flexor pollicis longus and pronata quadratus. We haven't done the extensor muscles yet, but on the back is the uh, abductor pollicis longus, which has a radius and ulna and interosseous membrane attachment. The extensor pollicis brevis, which always runs with it, a little bit below from the radius and interosseous membrane only. The extensor pollicis longus from an equivalent area on the ulna and interosseous membrane. And just below this, also from the ulna and a small origin and the interosseous membrane, is the extensor indices. So they swap over a little bit between the radius and ulna, the APL having a radius and ulna and interosseous membrane origin, whereas the others don't. They then have little separate either radial origins or ulna origins. So a radial origin for the EPB and then the EPL and the EI both have ulna origins. So that's the easy way to remember it. Um, when we think about these tendons off to the thumb, these come from more deeply, and they include the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis. We always think of those two together. And then the separate extensor pollicis longus, which is the one that takes that sharp turn around Lister's tubicle, and then the supplementary extensor indices, which is their useful tendon for tendon transfer and extra extensor to the digit. So it's relatively easy to remember if you think of it that way. The lower part of the shaft of the radius on the extensor surface is bare, as is the rounded lower quarter of the ulna. In the expanded shaft, if you look at the articulation of the wrist, uh, you turn it upside down, you'll see a square area for articulation with the lunate, and then a triangular area which articulates with the scaphoid. Laterally, of course, on the outside is the radial styloid, which attaches the radial collateral ligament of the wrist, and uh, is also the attachment, of course, of the brachioradialis tendon. And as we pass dorsally, we see the lister tubicle around which, as I've said, the EPL, the extensor pollicis longus, runs. And we'll examine the tendons under the extensor retinaculum uh, later on. But based on the anatomy, any radius exposure has some muscle separation required. Upper levels mean that you've got to sort of strip a bit of the supinator off the bone. You're less likely to injure the important posterior interosseous nerve if you do that um, carefully by stripping it off the bone. Lower down, retracting the brachioradialis, you can separate the flexor carpi radialis and you'll find there the radial artery and the median nerve. The exposure at the lower end requires... Uh, of the radius in the rate requires a little bit of stripping of the pronator quadratus, but there's not much that's under there. We need to also mention, I guess, the, in the osteology of the radius, a little bit about the ossification. It's endochondral. It begins at six weeks with a mid-shaft centre and one for each extremity. The lower end uh, is actually the growth end of the radius and it forms an extracapsular epiphysis. There's a centre for the head at about four years of age, and that fuses around puberty. And there can be some extra sites of ossification, like in the styloid process. For interest, I mean, the radius is the principal wrist bone 
the ulna, uh, the elbow. In tetrapods like horses, the two bones are actually often fused, whereas it's absent in those animals that have flippers or vestigial forelimbs. For those interested in the fracture world, of course, we should know our anatomy uh, in the Galeazzi fracture, a fracture of the radius with dislocation of the distal radioulnar joint, the Colley's fracture, which is the classically displaced distal radius fracture, the Smith fracture, which is a distal fracture of the radius with volar or ventral displacement of the wrist and hand, and the Barton fracture, an intraarticular fracture of the distal radius with dislocation of the radiocarpal joint. Of course, apart from a radius shaft fracture, there's a proximal shaft fracture of the radius which extends into the elbow capsule and that displaces the fat pad on X-ray, what's called an Essex Lepresti fracture. It's actually a fracture of the radial head with an associated dislocation of the proximal radioalna joint and disruption of the interosseous membrane and its mechanism. Um, I just want to bring those up because they've got some anatomical basis to clinical medicine. Okay, I think we're done with this part. Now, I'll go over the extensor compartment of the forearm and the osteology of the ulna. Um, I can tell you, by the way, uh, if I get this confused at times, uh, so do my students. So there's quite a bit to actually remember here. And if you like mnemonics, so be it. I'm not a great fan of mnemonics, as you know, even though I have peppered the, these talks uh, with a few of them. Uh, but we'll have a little musical interlude and come back um, on the other side. Okay, so uh, welcome back. Uh, first off, there are 12 muscles here that occupy this tight extensor compartment. Um, but they're mostly served by the posterior interosseous nerve. Of course, let's not forget the one at the top, the antconeus, which we've already met, and the supinator, which we haven't. The anconeus is one of the superficial group, the supinator, one of the deep. And from the lateral lower humerus, by which I mean really the lateral supracondylar ridge, you can go check it out on a humerus, come three lateral muscles. But uh, they're part of the extensor compartment, the brachioradialis, the extensor carpi radialis longus, and the extensor carpi radialis brevis. Of course, these three are not innervated by the posterior interosseous nerve, the PIN, P-I-N, as I'm going to call it uh, from now on. Now, coming from the common extensor origin, uh, the extensor digitorum, the extensor digiti minimi, and the extensor carpi ulnaris. Running from the deep part of the forearm are the three muscles which go to the thumb, and that is the abductor pollicis longus, 
and the extensor pollicis brevis, we always think of those two together, and the extensor pollicis longus. So always think of this APL and EPB, and the EPL. And finally, there's a separate extensor muscle, yes, a deep one, also to the index, which is the extensor indices, which a lot of people kind of forget about. It's like an insurance policy for the most deft finger of all. So if you want to recap on those um, uh, 12, we've got really one, the ancleus, two, the brachioradialis, three, the extensor carpi radialis longus, four, the extensor carpi radialis brevis, and then five, the extensor digitorum, six, the extensor digiti minimi, seven, the extensor carpi ulnaris, then eight, the abductor pollicis longus, nine, the extensor pollicis brevis, 10, the extensor pollicis longus, and 11, the extensor indices. And I guess the number 12 that I mentioned is, of course, the supinator. So uh, <coughs> coming in at least in part from the common extensor origin, which is the sort of lateral condyle equivalent on the extensor side of the common flexor origin, the medial epicondyle on the flexor side, Coming from there is the extensor carpi radialis brevis, the extensor digitorum, the extensor digiti minimi, and the extensor carpi ulnaris. That is, there's four muscles, whereas the common flexor origin has five, if you have a palmaris longus. And that, if we remember, is the pronator teres, the flexor carpi radialis, the flexor digitorum superficialis, the palmaris longus, and the flexor carpi ulnaris. But if you think of it in this way and write them all down, you can see the kind of flexor and extensor symmetry that exists if you think of them as gyrops. So there's some synchrony there, okay? Now, remember that the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis go together. The muscles of the thumb, the abductor pollicis longus and extensor pollicis brevis, they go together also under the extensor retinaculum in the same fascial sleeve. And then you've got the extensor pollicis longus, which, remember, takes that swerve around Lister's tubercle to get to the thumb and insert at the distal phalanx. Now, we'll see later about the special extensor expansion that forms on this side for tenderness insertion. That's actually in the next podcast when we talk about the wrist and the hand. But um, we'll get on to that in a subsequent uh, talk. So let's get back to it. We first can agree that we have a structure, the homology of the pin, the posterior interosseous nerve winding around the radius is a little like the common fibular nerve, what used to be called the common perineal nerve, which winds around the fibular neck. And the artery is the posterior interosseous artery, which runs over the top of the interosseous membrane into the extensor compartment. And it's just like the jump in the anterior tibial artery in the leg running into the extensor compartment uh, over or through the interosseous membrane. The difference is, of course, that everything in the lower limb, as I've said many times now, is reversed a 180 degrees because of the way the limb bud has rotated. But otherwise, there are great similarities once you orientate yourself. And we can also think that there are so many muscles that are in this compartment that there just wasn't quite enough room, in a sense, for their origin. Two of them, as we've said, have migrated upwards to the lateral supracondylar ridge, and the others have migrated downwards. 
So anyway, let's begin and talk about these particular muscles. And we need to talk individually about them. And for those, I think, who say that there isn't an importance of origin and insertion, well, they are important because if we know uh, the insertions, particularly these muscles, were able uh, to expose the nerves in the forearm quite readily. If we know the origins of these muscles, we can actually um, strip them off the bone in um, direct visualisation of the bone for, um, you know, for open reduction and internal fixation. So we start with the brachioradialis, and that's pretty easy to remember. It arises above the elbow from that lateral supracondylar ridge of the humerus. Perhaps it's up at two-thirds or so because there's a stout origin of that muscle and it runs down the preaxial border of the limb and is inserted into the radial styloid. So it's the lateral boundary we can remember of the cubital fossa. It runs on top of the radial artery and its lateral radial companion, the superficial radial nerve. I'm trying to repeat and reinforce what we've already learned. So some people may find it a little repetitive, but the idea is to reinforce what we know. Um, lift up the brachioradialis if you've got access to a cadaver. And, and that's where these two structures, the radial artery and the superficial radial nerve, are found. It's pretty simple. Uh, and it lies on top of, that is the brachioradialis, however, the supinator, the pronator teres, the flexor digitorum superficialis and the flexor pollicis longus. They're all sort of bunched together on the radial side at a slightly deeper level. Of course, the tendons of the APL, that's the abductor pollicis longus, and the extensor pollicis brevis, the EPB, which I've said, run together, they wind around the lower end of the brachioradialis. So it depends where you are in your dissection. That is where you are in relation to the wrist. The EPL, which is the other one, the extensor pollicis longus, also winds around it a bit more laterally on its way to the thumb. Now, the nerve supply to brachioradialis is the radial nerve, but actually above the elbow, uh, and that's an important point, a radial nerve neuropraxia, a sort of hangover elbow, somebody who lies on their um, uh, middle humerus, or one that occurs with a fractured shaft of humerus, is not typically associated with a triceps weakness, but the patient cannot extend or dorsiflex their wrist, and the brachioradialis action is weak. And you can feel that muscle contract. You can see it, for goodness sake, if you flex your arm halfway between supination and pronation, particularly against resistance. That's the way to test it. And here, of course, the radial styloid is the leading point as the forearm flexes. It's also a useful muscle that can be transferred, that is the brachioradialis, to replace the flexor pollicis longus in someone who has a median nerve palsy. And that really is literally all you need to know about this muscle. You then come across to the extensor carpi radialis longus. And again, this isn't particularly difficult. It arises from the lateral supracondylar ridge, but just below the brachioradialis origin. And uh, it passes down uh, behind the brachioradialis. If you turn the prosected limb over, 
And as I've already said, it's inserted as a flat tendon into the base of the second metacarpal. And its branch from the radial nerve is typically above the elbow too. It's a useful um, fist-making muscle, if you want to think of it that way, and it's a radial distractor. And it too can be used in a tendon or muscle transfer in a forearm paralysis. For example, someone who's got what's called a Bulkman's ischemic contracture after a vascular injury, a supracondylar fracture of the humerus, where it, this particular muscle can take over some of the functions of the flexor digitorum profundus. So it's an important muscle to know a little bit about. Now, that pushes us to the common extensor origin. I've already said this is the extensor carpi radialis brevis, the extensor digitorum, the extensor digiti minimi, and the extensor carpi ulnaris. The origin is on the lateral epicondyle, but fairly anterior. It's on its anterior surface, since these muscles pass in a straight line down to the extensor wrist when the forearm is in its working position, that is halfway between supination and pronation. And that explains why the common extensor origin is more anterior than you think it would be for a posterior group of muscles. So let's go through them very briefly. The extensor carpi radialis brevis arises, as I've said, from the common extensor origin. And it passes behind the extensor carpi radialis longus and it's inserted by a fairly flat tendon into the base of the third metacarpal. And it too is crossed by the tendons running through to the thumb, which we said already are the abductor pollicis longus and its companion, the extensor pollicis brevis, and also the extensor pollicis longus. The extensor carpi radialis brevis is innervated by the deep branch of the radial nerve just before it perforates supinator. So let's get our terminology right. Extensor digitorum is the next one, again arising from the common extensor origin, forming a rather rounded belly and splitting into its four tendons, passing crowded together under the extensor retinaculum, but overlying the extensor indices. The extensor digitorum tendon to the ring finger throws off a sidebar tendinous attachment to the little finger at about the level of the metacarpophalangeal joint, a sort of supportive slip to the separate extensor digiti minimi. The next muscle is the extensor digiti minimi, and that is usually split into two, and that provides a little greater little finger dexterity. And then we've got the extensor carpi ulnaris. We need to always think about the flexor carpi ulnaris with this, but in addition to the common extensor origin, there is an attachment of an aponeurotic part as I've said, that is in common with the flexor carpi ulnaris that emanates from the upper three quarters of the ulna. And this little tendon, the extensor carpi ulnaris, passes over the ulna styloid under the extensor retinaculum into the base of the fifth metacarpal. And as I've said before, in concert with the flexor carpi ulnaris, its job is to adduct or medially deviate the hand. So one extends and one flexes, but they act together to medially deviate the hand. We remember, of course, Ancaneus. It has an origin to remember on the lateral epicondyle. It's inserted into the lateral olecranon. And it's innervated by a small branch of the radial nerve 
that is usually given off in the spiral groove and that runs with the nerve to the medial head of the triceps. And the job of Ancanius is actually to prevent the distraction of the ulna that can occur during pronation. It also produces a slight amount of abduction, but I don't think that's particularly important. Now, we've got to get on to this supinator. It's a deep muscle. It's actually a little complex to understand. It has two heads with separate origins and with the pin, or posterior interosseous nerve, passing between the separate parts. The deep part of the supinator arises from an area called the supinator crest and the ulna fossa territory. Now you can go check this out on an ulna. So you find the lateral surface of the ulna and you follow the electronin down and you'll see and feel a little thin ridge which is called the supinator crest that runs down from the radial notch. And in front is an area that's actually called the supinator fossa which leads down into the interosseous border uh, of the ulna. Um, now, once we've ascertained where the deep part comes from, we can see that in the dissected cadaver, if you have access, that it spends its time in the upper forearm wrapping around the radius horizontally as quite a kind of robust, thick muscle, or thick bit of muscle, where it's inserted between the anterior and posterior oblique lines of the radius. Again, here it's valuable to assess a separate radius and ulna, and then to look at an articulated skeleton. There's also a more superficial part of the supinator, and that's like a series of slips, like a flying buttress, if you like, on a church, that also takes its origin from the very distal humerus off of the lateral epicondyle, just in front of that ancaneus origin, as well as from a little bit of the radial collateral ligament of the elbow and a little area behind the supinator crest, uh, as I've defined it, and also at a higher level uh, than the takeoff of the um, uh, abductor pollicis longus. So these little superficial slips run very vertically in front of the deep fibres, and they reach the radius as a kind of lateral strut support. You've got the deeper fibres wrapping from the ulna around the radius, and then supported by this little vertical flying buttress of muscle just above the oblique anterior line. And this muscle, of course, the supinator, by definition, is innervated by the deep branch of the radial nerve from the cubital fossa as... Um, two distinct separate branches. Um, of course, it pierces between the heads in the way I've described it and effectively then becomes the posterior interosseous nerve. Now, I imagine that if one thinks of the biceps brachii as the powerful supinator, it is the supinator proper that fixes the radius in position. But one can imagine that when the arm is in full extension, that it is then the supinator, which is the primary, albeit somewhat weaker, supinating muscle, even though it's called the supinator. Now, deep to all of these muscles and tendons, we see poking out in the lower one-third of the extensor surface of the forearm the deep three tendons that I've mentioned that are going to the thumb. And we briefly met them before, but they're easy to remember. 
As we've said before, the abductor pollicis longus and the extensor pollicis brevis, and the extensor pollicis longus. And these are the tendons that course to form the anatomical snuff box. So these are the ones we've got to consider. Okay then, the abductor pollicis longus arises from the radius and ulna and the interosseous membrane in between. That's really all you have to remember. The radial origin is just below the supinator from the posterior oblique line. And because of this lower origin, the ulna origin is higher. So you sort of see the muscles sloping down from the ulna to the radius, okay? This muscle can appear as if it has more superficial and more deep elements, and it can sometimes have a split tendon. The deeper element of the tendon tends to be inserted in the, into the trapezium, and here there can actually be an attachment of part of the thenar muscle, the abductor pollicis brevis. I'll return to that point when we're studying the hand together in the next podcast and look at the anatomical basis of median nerve palsy actually in that podcast and in the next one uh, when we're doing a summary of the uh, nerves of the upper limb. The main attachment of the abductor pollicis longus, however, is to the base of the first metacarpal more than the trapezium. And there can be a bursa between these little adjoining tendons if it's split. Of course, here, as we know, the nerve is the pin, the posterior interosseous nerve. And the muscle is, as it suggests, a very good thumb abductor. And by stabilising the trapezium, particularly if it inserts into a fair degree of it, it allows more of a kind of gliding movement of the thumb. Now, nearby is the extensor pollicis brevis. Unlike the APL, it has only a lower radial attachment, and that's below the attachment of the APL, as well as it's attached to a bit of the interosseous membrane, so radius and interosseous membrane for the EPB. And it runs with the APL, it's on its radial side by the snuff box, and it attaches to the base of the proximal phalanx of the thumb. It too, of course, is innervated by the posterior interosseous nerve, and it also abducts the thumb, somewhat against any kind of flexopolysis longus flexion. The third of this group in the snuff box is the EPL, the extensopolysis longus, and that has an ulnar attachment. That's just distal to the APL ulnar origin. Uh, that is, it has an extension of origin in the forearm that is higher, actually, than the EPB. And this muscle is inserted more distally into the base of the first terminal phalanx. So the EPL, that long tendon that runs around Lister's tubicle, goes to the distal phalanx. And this only has, as we know, an ulnar origin with some interosseous membrane. So we've got one having two bone origins, the APL with interosseous membrane, the EPB having a radius attachment and interosseous membrane, and the EPL having an ulnar attachment and interosseous membrane. So the EPL is the one that hooks around the Lister's tubicle, as I've said, forming the ulnar border of the anatomical snuffbox. It actually has a very specific blood supply by twigs of the anterior interosseous artery 
that can be occluded in a complicated Colley's fracture or a Smith's fracture and that can cause EPL wasting and erosion with a distal thumb drop. It used to be thought that effect was actually due to the rubbing of an undisplaced Colley's fracture or a poorly uh, reduced Colley's fracture, but is now believed to be due to delayed local ischemia. And the condition is also called in some uh, areas hammer thumb. In a later podcast, I'll be discussing the extensor expansion, actually in the next one, and in the way the insertion of these extensor tendons occurs at the interphalangeal and distal phalangeal joints. Suffice to say that this EPL is supported by slip attachments from the abductor pollicis brevis in the thenar eminence and from uh, the adductor pollicis. So muscles coming around from the palm support the extensor insertion of the EPL because the extensor expansion, the so-called hood expansion, exists on the index, middle, ring and little fingers, but not on the thumb. So the thumb EPL is supported by some palmar fibrous extensions. Quite interesting. We'll go through that a little bit in the next podcast. The nerve of the EPL is, of course, the pin, and its job is to extend the distal thumb, drawing the thumb away from its opposed uh, position. We're left with the extensor indices. We don't want to forget that little muscle. It has an ulna distal attachment. It's distal to the EPL, and it's very deep. And it's covered by those bunched-up tendons of the extensor digitorum, but it runs in their little extensor retinaculum compartment and in the same synovial sheath as the extensor digitorum. It runs on the woods of the index extensor digitorum or extensor digitorum communis, as it's sometimes called, tendon, and it joins the dorsal expansion for that finger, providing, if you like, a little insurance policy for the index finger and adding to its dexterity. The difference with the little finger, which also has two uh, extensor digiti minimi, is that the extensor indices is actually an entirely separate muscle. Now, we've, of course, created this little area, which is the anatomical snuff box. As the thumb extends, the ulnarwood boundary is the EPL, and the radioward boundary is the APL and the EPB. And this is how, of course, snuff is delivered to the nose from the side of a pinch placed on the wrist in the shallow hollow. The superficial radial nerves run along here and the cephalic vein takes origin. The radial artery runs here before it's about to sink um, into the depth of the first dorsal interosseus and move into the palm, forming the principal artery of the thumb and the artery of the radial side of the index finger. So the arteria princeps pollicis and the arteria radialis indices. I'll go through those in the next podcast. So it's fairly easy, really, this. In the depths of the snuff box is, of course, the radial uh, styloid, um, the first metacarpal base, uh, one proximal and the other distal. And between them is the scaphoid and a little whisker of trapezium. We know that a fractured scaphoid can be difficult to diagnose radiologically, and yet, because its distal fragment can be devascularized, is so in danger, unaligned, of late avascular necrosis and delayed wrist osteoarthritis. 
Even if the x-rays are inconclusive, the presence of a painful tender snuff box raises sufficient suspicion of a scaphoid fracture after someone's fallen on the outstretched hand and one would immobilise it in a plaster of Paris, fixing the uh, interphalangeal joint of the thumb for at least a couple of weeks before a repeat x-ray or a CAT scan. And my point is that tenderness here after a fall on the outstretched hand should be taken seriously. It's another great clinical use of the anatomy we know. Now, a couple of extra things. The posterior interosseous nerve, we should hardly need to mention. It is the compartment nerve. And it passes over the APL. It runs very deep to get to the interosseous membrane, just like the deep fibula or perineal nerve in the leg. And the pin runs down to the wrist, which it supplies, as well as the intercarpal ligaments. And it innervates the muscles arising from the common extensor origin and all of the deep muscles of the extensor compartment. It is the sensory nerve also of the interosseous membrane, as well as of the periosteum of the radius and ulna and the carpal bone periosteum. So again, like the deep fibular nerve at the ankle. It has no cutaneous branch of sensation unlike the deep fibular nerve, which we recall innovates that cleft between the great and second toe. So there are some similarities and some differences with the lower limb. We should mention the posterior interosseous artery, kind of in passing, really. This artery gets to where it wants to go, the extensor compartment, by passing above the interosseous membrane between it and the oblique cord. And in this sense, it's a bit like the anterior tibial artery of the leg, which accompanies the deep fibular nerve in the same way that this posterior interosseous artery accompanies the posterior interosseous nerve. But the difference here is that by the mid-forearm, about the end of the origin of the extensor indices, the posterior interosseous artery is usually pretty exhausted as a vessel. And then the anterior interosseous, as I've said before, pierces the interosseous membrane here above the pronata quadratus, and it takes over the rest of the extensor compartment arterial function. It's actually the anterior interosseous artery which forms the carpal vascular anastomotic network. Now, I said the area we haven't included there is the osteology of the ulna, so we've got to do that. Grab out an ulna if you've got one. It is the main stabiliser. So it's the formation of the humero-ulna joint, the elbow, and it is around it that the radius transcribes a circle of axis in pronation and supination. So it's the stability of the elbow. But unlike the radius, the ulna is bulky up top and it tapers inferiorly. The radius kind of doing really the reverse. Of course, the head of the radius uh, is proximal, whereas the head of the ulna is distal. At the top, the ulna expands as two discrete projections, the olecranon posteriorly and the coronoid process anteriorly, so that the area between them looks like a large rough saddle that's there to grip the bulky trochlea of the humerus. As the olecranon gives way to the shaft, the medial surface can give origin to some of the flexor digitorum profundus near the flexor surface and the posterior head of the medial collateral ligament of the elbow. Laterally, at this level, high up, is where the ancaneus attaches, as I've already mentioned. The coronoid, of course, accepts the brachialis, and medially there's a smooth elevation at that point, which is called the sublime tubercle. 
where the flexor digitorum superficialis attaches. It used to be called also the flexor digitorum sublimus. And that might be the origin of those terms, as well as the medial collateral ligament of the elbow, which joins there. And the ulnar nerve lies in bony contact here. Now, below medially, there's an origin to the deep head of the pronator teres. Laterally, as we look out, if you've got an ulnar, is the radial notch, which is covered here with hyaline cartilage. The front and back surfaces of the notch attaching the free kind of waistband of the annular ligament and the so-called quadrate ligament, which attaches just below these anterior and posterior margins. Just below that is the attachment point of the oblique cord above the interosseous membrane. And we've been through many of these points, so they're just really reinforcements and revision. Between the olecranon and the coronoid is that whole saddle-shaped trochlear notch, um, which I've already mentioned. Uh, it's concave from top to bottom, convex from side to side. It kind of fits into the trochlea of the humerus, and you can see that uh, if you've got two uh, disarticulated pieces of humerus in an ulna. The capsule and the synovial membrane attach at all of these points that I've mentioned, and they extend to the radial notch, so the elbow and the proximal or superior radial ulna joint are all one joint, as we all know. The ulnar shaft is slightly laterally bowed with the main clear feature, a sharp interosseous border just below the radial notch, where this ridge is most prominent is an area called the supinator crest, which we briefly met before, and into the lower part of the coronoid process is a shallow cavity, which we've also met called the supinator fossa, and that's the deep attachment of the supinator muscle. The interosseous membrane attaches a little below this and then it runs down to the distal radioalma joint. The membrane, of course, separates the flexor and extends the forearm compartments. The flexor digitorum profundus comes from this interosseous membrane and the upper three quarters of the ulna between the subcutaneous and interosseous borders. On the extensor side, of course, as we know, the subcutaneous border of the ulna gives its attachment to the aponeurotic flexor carpi ulnaris, as well as the deep fascia of the forearm below on a small ridge running up from the styloid process. Also on the flexor side, we've got the origin of the pronata quadratus. As we look at the extensor surface, we see the attachment of the three thumb muscles, which we've already been to, uh, which leave small bony impressions. The APL, which has a separate radial attachment, as we know, is the ulnar attachment and attachment to the interosseous membrane the EPL, which attaches to the ulna and interosseous membrane, and below that, the extensor indices, which is usually ulna, a small area, not so much of the interosseous membrane. The head of the ulna, by the time we get down to that, is pretty small, with an attachment point by a pit for the disc of the distal radial ulna joint. And the ulna styloid lies below that. The lower joint, the lower part of that joint, is covered, as we know, by the extensor Carpia ulnaris tendon. Now, in talking about the bone, we need to know a little bit about its ossification. It's endochondral, a centre for the shaft developing at eight weeks with ossification of the head by about six years, and that's the growing end, and that fuses by about skeletal maturity. 
the epiphysis of the electron on this scene at about 10 years of age, and that is good for dating a plain X-ray, and that fuses by about 18 years of age. The other area that we haven't covered before we get into the next podcast, which will be the hand and wrist, is the extensor retinaculum. And this is an old favourite question of examiners. Now, if you can get access to a cadaver, have a good look at this. It is a favourite anatomy exam question, so know it. And let's conclude this rather lengthy tutorial with this um, uh, little bit. Like all of the retinacular, it's a ribbon restrainer, about an inch wide to control the movement of the tendons across a joint. Each of the retinacular are a bit different and they have a few unique characteristics with some differences between the upper and lower limbs. In our uh, next podcast, as I've said, I'll start with the flexor retinaculum, which we've left out in this podcast because of its clinical significance with carpal tunnel syndrome or median nerve compression syndrome. In the case of the extensor retinaculum, you might think that it has an attachment to both the radius and the ulna. That's also one of my favourite questions, actually. What are its attachments? And of course, if you think about it, that doesn't really make any sense. If it did have both radial and ulnar attachments, then it would have remarkable redundancy by a factor of about 20% or more of its working width in pronation and then tightened in supination. So that wouldn't work at all. So it has an attachment to the radius, all right, above the styloid process to the level of about where the pronata quadratus is. But on the ulnar side, it's attached to the pisiform and the triquetrum. By comparison, the deep fascia of the forearm attaches to the styloid process of the ulna, but not to the radius, being separated by those tendons on their way to the thumb. Such a single bony attachment for these allows a much greater flexibility of movement as the radius has to move around the axis of the ulna. This wouldn't work if you had both bones being uh, attaching either the deep fascia of the arm or the extensor retinaculum. Without this more complex arrangement, the tendons couldn't be held down equally in all states of pronation and supination. The retinaculum, as we know, sends septa down to create six separate compartments, which is, as I say, a classical question in the exams. You can see a wrist, and you'll identify, obviously, the extensor pollicis longus running around the listus tubicle. That'll orientate you very well. On the radial side, we're talking about compartments now, is the common compartment of the APL and EPB, as we know. And these lie in separate synovial sheaths. The next against the radial side of Lister's tubicle are the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, also in separate synovial sheaths, but in the same fibrous compartment. Then lies the EPL, which you've used to orientate yourself around the tubicle. Then over a shallow groove over the radius is the combined extensor digitorum, or so-called extensor digitorum communis, and the extensor indices, all in a common synovial sheath, even though they're two different muscles. And then over the radioulnar joint transmitting the two extensor digiti minimi tendons in a single synovial sheath. And finally, as we've said near the ulnar styloid, is the extensor carpial naris in its own synovial sheath. So those are the six separate compartments that we want you to know. 
So our next anatomy podcast is getting into the wrist and the hand. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next time.
Thank you. 